We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Hey all, welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. We are so happy to have you with us this morning. Uh, happy spring. I know we've said that the last couple of weeks, but uh, it's like the just little reminder that spring is in the air and and that maybe winter is almost past us however i keep watching the forecast and it looks otherwise you know oh unseasonably cold i'm so sick of that term like let's move on it's time but like everyone we've kind of mentioned this a couple times but it's just starting to ramp up it's crazy it's wonderful it's exciting it, it finally feels like we're maybe moving on from our covid lull and and back into the swing of things like most of us i think i'm still trying to remember like so how did we do that um how did we juggle all of these things at the same time without breathing but um you know such is life and and we we figure it out so um but whenever I think of spring, you know, I start, I, I turn my ears on. We've, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, with toddlers, we, we like to say, turn your ears and shut your mouth. Right. So whenever I think of spring, I, I, I open those ears and start listening because I'm listening for the chirping of the birds. It's always kind of my telltale sign that maybe snow is gone and, and green and flowers are to come. But so I am so excited for this morning's guest. But before we get into our conversation today, Julia, Nebraska, how's it going? Yeah, you speak of that crazy springness. We love the season, but then holy smokes nothing like hitting the wall and be like okay how do i do these events again we haven't done these in-person events for two years and so now it's like okay uh maybe i need to put those training wheels back on uh the the chain on the bike is just a little rusty uh my tires are flat but you know we're gonna get going we're we're, we're tuning up the bike and these events they're they're coming whether we're ready or not uh spring is full force of what we have our outdoor discovery programs and over 3,000 kids are going to be joining us at parks this uh, april and so i have a few gray hairs popping out and um you know but as you say you speak of those the birds it's like you can step out and, and it is just like take a deep breath you hear them singing they're enjoying life they don't care about their surroundings like like we are, they're not concerned or have anxiety over these events, and so I'm I'm very excited to um, have this conversation today. So, um, with that, today we are joined by a voice some of our subscription box purchasers might remember, Anna Buckart Thomas. Anna, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Will you take a moment to introduce yourself and give us a little background about yourself? Sure. Um, so I work for the Iowa DNR. I'm the avian ecologist here, so uh, the non-game bird biologist. And I guess I, I grew up in Illinois in the suburbs of Chicago, north of the city. 
but I was spoiled in that I actually got the opportunity to grow up on a 500 acre forest preserve where my mom was a naturalist. So I got the kind of best of both worlds that suburban living, but really I was kind of secluded in the woods in the middle of all of it. So my mom was an environmental educator and my dad was a stay at home dad with a degree in outdoor recreation. And so I was really effectively brainwashed into loving nature and I don't regret it for a second. <laughs> so I had this really cool upbringing that, yeah, really led me to, to what I do today. I, I got my undergraduate degree at the university or Michigan Technological University um, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan where I got a double major in applied ecology and environmental science and wildlife ecology and management. And that's where I really got my first start at field biology and uh, research. And then I, I got my master's degree at the University of Maine in Orno. Um, and during that research, I actually, I studied birds in Wisconsin. Um, so I spent most of the year in, in uh, Maine, but then in the summers, I, I headed over to Wisconsin where I, I worked on some research on American woodcock and golden-winged warbler were my two focal species. So post-graduation, it wasn't too long, and then I, I uh, joined the DNR here. That's awesome. It, I love I love that phrase that you were kind of brainwashed into into this world. And, and your background is so interesting. Many of our guests are you know, they, they had like a little upbringing in the outdoor world, but really didn't get into it until they were adults. So it's kind of fun to hear the absolute opposite that you were just like absolutely immersed from a, from a young age and, and appreciated that immersion. I think sometimes we don't necessarily appreciate some of the immersion that our parents give us. So that's, that's so exciting. You mentioned you're a non-game bird biologist. For those of us not in the sciencey world, what what do you mean by non-game? Yeah, so I study and manage the birds that you can't hunt. Um, so not waterfowl, not uh, upland game birds, but I focus on basically the 200 other species. So the songbirds, um, the shorebirds, some of those other species that are not typically hunted. That's awesome. Um, so as as the non-game bird biologist or avian biologist, what's a day-to-day? Like, what is your current role? What do you, what do you do? So uh, I'm the only non-game avian ecologist for the DNR. So I have to think at a statewide scale and think about hundreds of species. Um, So my day is very varied. Sometimes I'm conducting research out in the field, doing uh, bird surveys. Sometimes I'm coordinating volunteers to do bird surveys. Sometimes I'm answering questions from the public, from social media, what's this bird, or how do I attract a bluebird to my nest box, or whatever the question may be. Sometimes I'm working on reviewing folks' management plans with the lens of that bird management and conservation in mind. Um, Sometimes I'm working with regional partners on conservation projects. So there's just a lot of variety in what I get to do, which is, I think, why it's so exciting. And usually it's not too overwhelming, but sometimes you just think about the scope that you have. And uh, sometimes it seems really, really big, but so far it's been a lot of really fun variety and I get to think about and, and care about these birds that I love so much every day. So it's pretty awesome. And I think you, uh, you kind of started and your background perhaps was the, how you absorb that love or the beginning love of birds, and then a little bit of your background with your schooling. But 
I welcome you and open the mic to you to expand a little bit more on how you got into birds and birding and all things winged. Sure. So uh, my mom was actually a birder. So uh, she was a naturalist, but just as a hobby, she was always out looking at birds. Um, And she picked up that hobby through a class in college. But that was just something that she and my dad did for fun. And so as kids, you know, they'd show us the birds in the bird feeder. And uh, when we were really little, we had my dad made this really cool bird feeder that was made out of one way, like plexiglass that actually stuck into the kitchen over the kitchen table. So the chickadees would come into the house and we could see them real close. And um, that was always a really cool experience. But then, yeah, my, my mom was always out birding. And so I have been birding for as long as I can remember. I think the pair of binoculars I use now, I got in seventh grade, you know, and I had pairs before that. So, I, you know, I've, uh, it's been just kind of a, a family thing. Um, my brother's really into it as well. My sister tolerates it, um, but she's more into herpetology and, and other types of critters. But I think the other big thing is as we were growing up, when we went on family vacation, it was all about what new habitat and what new birds can we visit. So we went to the Everglades to see the herons and the egrets and the cool birds of Florida. And then we went to the desert of Arizona to see all of the crazy birds that hang out in, you know, the cactuses and all those really cool different habitats. And so, yeah, as kids, we, all of our vacations were based on where can we go hiking and learning about new ecosystems and where can we see new birds? And so, like I said, it was a complete and total brainwash and it was absolutely wonderful. That is so cool. Our family loves the uh, vacation movies. And so there's always a reference to like Aunt Edna or, or just the, the family roadster. And so I can imagine like your whole family, you know, binoculars in hand as you're going down the road, just excited to see like, you know, the next, like, are we going to see a roadrunner today in, you know, the Texas, Arizona area, or are we going to see, you know, whatever, marsh bird over on the eastern um seaboard like i can't imagine what you know i i've been picturing you guys all like on with a map in you know and then like oh maybe we'll see this one here like let's go there so that sounds like just such a fun fun childhood and and yeah i'm i'm a little jealous i'm not gonna lie (laughs) i know it's not very typical and uh the older i get the more I realized how unique and special it was that we got that opportunity. So I really appreciate that my parents took the time and, and made that a focus of our upbringing was that love of nature and just that exploratory kind of curiosity of what can we see next? And, you know, on those, on those trips, there was always lots of, Oh wait, top the car, turn around. What was that? (laughs) You know, Um, sometimes we turned around and it was a stick in a tree that we thought was a bird, or there was the the famous time we turned around where we thought we saw an alligator and it was an old tire in the, in the Creek. So, um, (laughs) but we're always, you know, stop the car. What was that? Or um, there's a Brown sign with a new place to explore. Let's stop there. So uh, that was, that's just kind of always been the way my family operates and it's really been a really important piece of, of who I am today. That's cool. The, <laughs> the, I just have these like images of you guys all running out to see and, and trying to like sneak up because I guess that's been always been my biggest problem with birding is I want to talk or point or make gestures and but we started the show talking a little bit about spring birds migration and 
as a non-biologist myself, can you talk a little bit about migration? Like, why do these birds make make these epic trips? Sure. So migration is all about resources and uh, the advantages of making those big movements. So there's some thought and some research that suggests that a lot of the birds that breed in North America and that we consider neotropical migrants or those that breed up in North America and winter in Central and South America, a lot of those birds are descendant from tropical ancestors. So over time, they moved farther and farther north to take advantage of the resources that occurred in the northern hemisphere. And so those resources are extended day length, which improves growing seasons and improves insect abundance. And so that flush of insect and protein and food resources is really hugely important during the breeding season for these birds. So it's advantageous for them to move so far, thousands of miles in some cases, to take advantage of those resources and not be competing with those tropical ancestors and those tropical birds that stay locally tropical. And so um, they're taking advantage of that big pulse of resources we have during the summer in the Northern Hemisphere and then finding nesting locations as well where they don't have to compete. Um, and so that's a lot of it is that just that advantage of taking care of that or uh, taking advantage of that pulse of resources. Now, do those, does a bird take the same trip each year? Do they follow the same path or is it, you know, they decide they want to get off and exit 42 instead of 43 this year? Like, are there variations on their, on their trip? So the individual bird, there's, there's a lot of different variations. So some species are pretty site faithful. So they might have a breeding site that they continue to come back to every year, and they might have a wintering site that they typically return to every winter. And their route may be pretty similar. But again, if the weather is playing a role, you know, maybe a front comes in and they might get blown off course. And so they may end up end up in the same spot every year, but they might take a slightly different path. But typically there is some some consistency in kind of the the locations that they end up using and the routes that they're taking which is pretty amazing because with a map and compass alone, I don't know that I could repeat that thousand mile journey, but they just use the stars and the landscape and their internal compass and the magnetic field of the earth to be able to do that without a GPS. And it's, it's pretty, pretty miraculous. For the beginner birder like myself, I'm just, I, I, did, I wasn't raised birding. I was raised around chickens and, you know, just different type of birds. <laughs> and, but for the beginning birder my, like myself, if we are like trying to look or listen for the first birds of spring, my family has always listened for the robin. Would that be true? So robins singing are a really good sign of spring. As soon as they start singing their, their really nice song, that's a good sign that winter's starting to move on. Another one that I listen for is at the end of winter, you start to hear the, the black-capped chickadees singing their Hey Sweetie or Cheeseburger songs. And that's really kind of the precursor to spring in my mind, because there's often still snow on the ground, but then you know it's coming. For us in the Midwest, one of the first bird groups to come by is the waterfowl. So a lot of ducks are flying through right now. Um, ducks and geese. And so that's one of the first species. As soon as the ice breaks up, 
um, and we get those winds from the south, those ducks are going to move through. And they're not shy about being around even as we continue to have those last few snows of, of winter, but they're going to be some of the first species to arrive in the spring. In terms of the robins, that song is really important, but it's kind of a little bit of a misconception but lots of robins actually stay local in the Midwest all winter. So they're not all leaving. So you may see robins all winter long. What you see in the spring is larger numbers of robins, and then you hear them start to sing, and that's kind of the, the sign that it's not just the wintering robins, we're switching over to spring. I go back to this road trip concept. I apologize. It's just in my brain now, but you kind of hit on it. You mentioned that the robins, there are a population of robins that stay here in the Midwest. Are there other species that stay closer to the Midwest or actually just reside here all winter? Yeah, we do have a number of bird species that we consider residents, so they don't migrate long distances. So the species that you see all winter long at your bird feeders, like goldfinches and chickadees and nuthatches and the woodpeckers, all of those birds are local residents and they don't have those large migratory movements like these other species do. And so those birds are year-round in kind of the similar habitat. Their ranges might shift a little bit during different seasons, but really they're pretty stationary. So there's quite a number of birds that we'll see all year round, and they don't make those big movements. So one of the birds, and we're just wrapping up here in the season, we're recording this the first part of April, so we're kind of touching the end of the season of the Sandhill Crane. And, you know, they are a major attraction. I mean, honestly, people come to Nebraska worldwide to see the amazing sandhill cranes coming through on that flyaway or that fly zone. So I encourage our listeners to hit up the Kearney, Nebraska area. And even when you're in that area, like February, March time, kind of always depends on a little bit on the weather, but it's, it's pretty typical that they'll be in uh, Kearney, Grand Island area, kind of the end of February, middle of March time frame. But um, if you look in the sky, not only are the, the sandhill cranes in the water, dancing in the cornfields. And then, you know, Anna mentioned the migration of the waterfowl. Like, I kid you not that the sky will be white of snow geese. Meteorologists will pick up, like they, they think it's a storm coming in. They'll report, but if they look, it's actually the so many waterfowl that are in the sky that it'll report that it's the birds, it's not storms coming in. So it's really cool, not only as an attractant for our birders, but also, you know, it's, it's, it's a hunting season as well. So, you know, recently there's been some conversations in the news that I've overheard that perhaps with the change in the seas, the weather, uh, maybe some climate change, have you noticed or have you done any research that that is changing migration patterns? Yeah, there is absolutely research that has documented a shift in the timing of migration for certain species. So some migrations are shifting earlier as our, our winters get shorter. So yeah, there's definitely impacts there. Then the, the concern becomes mismatch between the timing of migration and that pulse of resources. So if, for example, insects are are hatching sooner in the season, but the birds are still migrating on their old time period, they may miss that pulse to go along with their nesting period. So there can be issues in mismatch of the phenology is what we call it, the timing of those different ecological happenings that can really 
potentially impact a species breeding population and their breeding success and then their population numbers long term. So there is some evidence that climate change is shifting the timing of those bird migrations. And so uh, as we continue down this road, we'll learn more about what those timings and if those mismatches are really causing issues. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing is here in Nebraska, we had a pretty dry year, very, very dry, dry winter, and it made a difference on the amount of water as well for the waterfowl population and even in the cranes. And so when you don't have as much water for them to land in for food resource or for protection during the night, uh, they start kind of piling on top of each other and they don't know where to go because they can't find their water hole or then again, this kind of when diseases start spreading because of the lack of resources. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those droughts and flood conditions can also have big impacts on, on our bird populations. Now, Anna, you kind of mentioned that you you are the lone avian ecologist for the state and, and you kind of look at things micro as in like specific locations around the state, a little bit more macro statewide. But then with birds migrating so much, there's got to be a ton of like regional collaboration because I know I know we speak a lot about kind of a flyaway. Can you talk a little bit more about the flyaway and like what that all entails? Sure. So you're absolutely right that, especially with these birds moving so far, we can't just think about Iowa if we're going to be effective conservationists for the species. We have to think about what's called the full annual cycle. So where are they wintering? What resources are they using on migration? How are they getting here? All of the stages of the life of a bird are important to the success of that population. And so understanding that full scale, even though it may cross multiple countries, is really important. And it's also really challenging to work across those political boundaries sometimes. So in terms of the flyways in the Midwest or in the U.S., we're a part of what's called the Mississippi Flyway. And so that's a region of states from the Gulf Coast all the way up and through into Canada, kind of along the Mississippi River. And so we are a a region where lots of birds are migrating through. And so we coordinate among those states and and the Canadian provinces in that flyway. So there is a a Mississippi Flyway Council, and there are both a game bird technical section and a non-game bird technical section that basically is biologists, state biologists, um, coming together across that whole region to think about and to plan seasons if you're on the game side, or if you're on the nine game side to plan research and conservation efforts on that regional scale. That regional importance is is really big when we're talking about birds that have such large migrations. Anna mentioned Iowa is in the Mississippi migration flyaway, but pretty much most of actually all of Nebraska, except for maybe the last two steps in our southeast corner, we're in the central uh, flyaway. And so is most of Kansas as well for our listeners. The central flyway has a similar setup where they have a game section and a non-game bird section, and they kind of tackle those same questions for that region of the country. And I assume New England or or the East Coast has a similar setup, and as well as the Western. Yep, there's also a Pacific and Atlantic flyway, and again, those flyways regions are operating similarly. Sure, and I'm sure that you're dealing with very similar and very different 
species of birds, right? Like both of your, your coasts are dealing a little bit more with some of your ocean birds, as well as, you know, some of the, the birds like mallards and, and other little bit more common ducks that we see through, through the Midwest. It's, it turns out that animals don't recognize any uh, human-made boundary. And, and this is just kind of another reiteration of that. But it is impressive to see um, so many states, provinces, territories working together in conjunction for, you know, the, the betterment of a, of a single of focus. It's, it's just, I think sometimes in polarizing times, it's nice to see that we, we can actually work together in places and, and we do have success stories and it's pretty impressive to see. With all of the migration, we've talked about a couple of different species. Do you have like a, you know, a favorite species that sticks out to you? I have a hard time picking a favorite. Um, they're all really interesting and different and they've all got such cool adaptations and varieties of um, strategies, but I think when we think about migrations, there's two kind of North American species that kind of are record holders. Um, unfortunately, neither of these species we really see in Iowa, but the Arctic tern flies almost 50,000 miles a year from the Arctic summering range all the way down to the southern part of the globe. So they are making these huge migrations every year, and they're mostly doing it over water. So they're flying a lot. They don't perch very much. And then kind of the other record holder that I think of is the barge-tailed godwit, which is a species that breeds in, in the Arctic, but they have kind of the record for the longest sustained flight without stopping. So they fly 7,000 miles without taking a rest during migration, which is just amazing and crazy. And how do they have enough fuel for that? And how are they strong enough? And all these cool questions and but birds can do really amazing things. You know, they have these really, really cool adaptations and strategies to make sure that these really big migrations are possible. And because of that resource, that huge migration is advantageous for the species. And it's worth going 50,000 miles a year for the Arctic tern, which is just incredible. So, yeah, birds amaze me every day. And migration is, is specifically is just mind-boggling and so cool. So, yeah, I could, I could talk about it forever. And for those of you that might be a, a budding birder like myself, Cornell University has a website called allaboutbirds.org. So as Anna was talking about the Arctic tern, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta see what this bird looks like. Cause you know, is it a tiny little chickadee or is it this massive, you know, huge bald eagle sized bird. And so this website actually kind of shows you in proximity to maybe birds that are a little bit more common or, or you can judge the size of like how big it is. So this bird is between a robin and a crow. So it's it's a pretty decent sized bird, but to fly that far, I, I can't I can't even wrap my brain around it. It's impressive. And it has yes. to take significant amount of food or energy to be able to store up to travel that far over water and and not have a source to land and and to fuel up that's cool absolutely yeah so before migration birds go into this phase we call hyperphagy where they just eat 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 eat, eat kind of like a bear does before hibernation um, and they just get as fat as they can um, with some birds almost doubling their weight from between summer and right before migration and they just eat as much as they can and 
some some species a lot of species don't do it in one straight shot so lots of species need what we call stopover habitat where along their route they're going to stop and refuel and get more food to continue and, and take a rest so that's why a lot of the habitats that we have in the midwest even though there's birds that just fly north of us and breed in canada our habitat is still really important to them because they're those stopover and refueling sites. And so we play a big role as that kind of middle of the country flyways. We play a big role in providing those stopover habitats for birds as they move north and south through our through our region. So many birds are doing multiple long legs where they stop. They may stop for a few hours and they stop for a few days to just refuel. And then of course the weather is impacting when when is a good time to fly. So they like those southern southern winds and um, take advantage of fronts and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of cool strategies and and each species is a little bit different, which just makes it so much more exciting. What did you call that again when they're packing it on for their food? <laughs> it's hyperphagy. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I'm thinking that's what I probably do. Or maybe I wish I could just pack it all on like on a Sunday and not have to eat the rest of the week, right? Wouldn't that be convenient? Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds great. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the concept that a lot of these birds go with. They just pack it on and then while they're flying, they're burning all that fat that they have stored up. And if it gets to the point where later in migration, sometimes the birds will actually start to even burn their muscle mass if they haven't if they haven't got enough stores of fat to get them you know especially if they're doing a large water crossing many times the birds will fly over the gulf of mexico um, not on land so they need to make that whole journey across the ocean and so making sure they have that fat stores to get them across and then oftentimes they'll have what's called a fallout where right when they get onto land again there'll be a huge number of birds that fall out or drop from the sky right after their migration and are just seen in large groupings and multiple species and so if they've got a really great weather night to cross over the gulf you'll see these fallout periods occurring kind of right along the gulf shore um, in texas and louisiana and down there as those birds just come over and say okay i've gotten over the over the water i really just need to take a rest and get some more food and that makes sense that's why all of those barrier islands are just overwhelmed and inhabited by birds that's fascinating Yeah, totally makes sense that you're going for forever and we're landing. We're landing now. We don't care who we're with. We're going to make friends because we are exhausted. Here we come. We're going into that gas station for the last like package of crackers or the last chocolate bar that they have and we're fighting over it. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. When we think about stopover habitat, there's um, this classification like a fire escape, which is like, I need, I need help now. And it, it doesn't matter. You know, it could be the smallest patch. I just need something. And then there's like the um, convenience store, which is, I have a little, you know, there's some options here and maybe it's a little bit bigger patch of habitat. And then there's like the overnight motel where, you know, you've got the full services and everything you need. Um, so we think about those different kind of stages of, of stopover habitat too. When we think about Um, What resources does this patch provide and in what circumstances is it useful for for the birds that I'm moving through? You know, it's it's funny that you say that because it kind of leads into my my next question for you. As a landowner, whether it's even um, in my 
my 140 acre pasture where, you know, the cows are in during the summer. And then also even in my yard, what can I provide in my yard to provide that convenience store where they have a little bit of options? They're happy they can grab their Coca-Cola and their chocolate bar of choice so that they can fuel up and be happy and continue on. So the biggest thing that we can provide to birds as they're moving through is food resources. And the best way to do that is to plant native plants. So if you have a small yard, you can plant a patch of pollinator habitat that has native grasses and native flowers from a grassland ecosystem that will support native insects that will feed our birds. Um, those habitats are also really important for, you know, sheltering. So it, it might protect them from predators. The native tree and shrub and plant species are going to provide food for our native insects, which provide food for our native birds and other wildlife. So planting natives is really important. Of course, you can also provide bird feeders and that sort of supplemental food. But again, if you're going to attract them to a bird feeder, you want to make sure that there's some sort of cover for them to take uh, shelter in if a predator comes along. And if you're bringing a bird to your to your house by a feeder or a bird bath, you also want to make sure that your your yard is a safe space for them. So especially thinking about cats, if you have outdoor cats, they are excellent predators and it's not their fault, but they're going to kill some birds. And so if you're going to attract birds to your yard, you should think about making sure that your yard is a safe space for those birds. Another kind of risk factor is collisions with windows. So lots of birds actually die each year colliding with windows. Um, and we think a lot about how it might be a, a skyscraper problem. You know, we see those pictures of hundreds of birds that hit a skyscraper one night during migration. And so there's lights out programs that can help reduce the impacts of, of those large city buildings. But if we think about the number of small buildings across the country, there are far more windows on small buildings. And so we might only get one or two bird strikes on our house each year, but everybody else's house is getting that too. And so that is really the source of the major collision numbers comes from all the small buildings we have in the country. So if we can be careful to protect birds from window collisions, there's things we can do like putting decals or diverters on our windows, making sure that the birds see that it's a window and don't just see reflected um, trees and think, oh, that's open forest for me to fly into and hit the window. You can also think about how you're placing your bird feeder. So you want to make sure your feeder is either within three feet of your window or at least 30 feet away so that if the bird is scared off your feeder, it's close enough it won't get hurt if it hits the window or it's far enough away that it won't hit the window if it's scared. Um, so these are the sorts of things we, we want to think about. If we're going to provide habitat, we're going to provide food for birds, we also want to make sure that they're coming to a safe space. Um, so reducing those risks that our lives may pose on them is a really great way to be good stewards and good friends to our migratory birds. Anna, you mentioned that you grew up birding. You kind of grew up immersed in this world. Uh, many of our listeners have kids, Julia, myself included. If we want to get our kids into this, you know, we want to learn more ourselves. Any tips, ideas, or suggestions getting getting folks into birding? Yeah, so birding can be anything you want it to be, as long as you are enjoying birds. So you might think of a birder as someone wearing their 
khaki pants and their vest and their binoculars and they got their spotting scope over their shoulder and they got a book in this pocket and another book in this pocket. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, you can, if you're outside enjoying birds, even if you don't know what they are, you can, you can say you're a birder. You can enjoy birds that way. Um, if you enjoy birds, just looking at your feeder, that's a really great place to start learning. What are the kind of common species I have? What comes to my bird feeder? Let's see if we can identify them. That's a really great way for, for kids as well, who it might be a little bit harder for them to use a pair of binoculars maybe if they're young. So getting them started out, what's right outside my window, what's coming to the bird feeder can be a really easy and great way to, to get kids and, and families involved. There's also programs in some states, like in Iowa, we have the Iowa Young Birders group, and it is specifically targeted for programming and field trips and community building for young people who are excited about birding. Um, And I believe that there is also a Young Birders group in Nebraska. I'm not sure about Kansas, but there are groups that can encourage and foster and facilitate those outdoor Uh, outings and also connect kids with other kids who like birding. And so that's a really great resource, especially here in Iowa with the Iowa Young Birders that folks can use to build that community and just start learning. So basically just pay attention, observe and see what you hear and go from there. So Anna, as we uh, round out this conversation, you know, thank you for joining us. I think Rachel and I could have went on and on with lots of questions We've had a lot of different podcasts about birds, but it seems like every one that we bring we bring onto the podcast has a different perspective of birding. And it just gives that it kind of gives that view of there's endless opportunities with the world of birding, no matter what perspective you want to take on it. Absolutely. Uh, so I will add that birds are everywhere. So you'll find birds in the city, you'll find birds in the country, you'll find birds in any habitat. And so it's a really kind of easy way to connect with nature wherever you are. Even if it's just a pigeon, you know, it's a bird. That's a wild bird. We can enjoy that wild bird, um, even in a downtown setting. So, um, yeah, birds are everywhere, and we should appreciate them and be grateful for them in our lives everywhere. Absolutely. So to round that off, then, are any recommendations or suggestions on where our listeners can find more information on birding? We've, we have a, li- a few to list here that will pop on our website as well, but what do you suggest? Oftentimes there are local birding groups. So Audubon, for example, there's a national Audubon. I think there's, there's state Audubon chapters in Iowa. We have the Iowa Audubon. We also have the Iowa Ornithologist Union. I believe there's a Nebraska and a Kansas Audubon. There's also oftentimes local chapters of those groups. So they might be a statewide group, but there might be a a specific um, city center that has a a more active club. So for example, we have a Des Moines Audubon group here in Iowa um, and there's several across the state. So that's one way to get involved. And oftentimes those folks are really excited about sharing birding with people who are unfamiliar with it. There's also that really great resource that Rachel mentioned, um, allaboutbirds.org from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And the Cornell Lab has that really great website. They also have a number of programs and and kind of community science-based projects where you can get involved in things like NestWatch or they have an online kind of bird ID and tracking site called eBird. Um, Those are really great resources and, and ways to get involved. And then... 
there's cool apps as well. So there's the Audubon Society has a, a bird guide app, which has all of the birds in North America, as well as all of their sounds that you can download for free. You can use that app to record your sightings and track things. And it, you can look up range maps and, you know, the, all the field guides, things that you need. And then another really great app from Cornell is called Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N. And that app is really useful for figuring out what that bird is, but when you don't know. So it'll use clues like how big was it? Where were you? What time of year was it? Um, what were the big, what were the main colors that you saw? Um, and use those types of clues to give you kind of a short list of possibilities. So you can say, I saw a red bird that was bigger than a chickadee and it was in a forest. And they'll say, was it a cardinal? Was it a scarlet tanager? Was it a summer tanager? And you can look at those pictures and, and see, oh, it matched that. I think I saw a cardinal. So that's a really great resource as well. And I think now they also have a function where you can take a picture of a bird and it will give you those options or record the sound of a bird and it will give you the best options for that. So that's another really great way to kind of start learning and getting a feel for things. But yeah, so connect with other people in the area who are, who are looking and interested in birds, go on bird walks. Oftentimes those clubs will host bird walks, especially during the summer. But yeah, there's lots of really great resources out there. So if you're interested, do some Googling and, and you'll, you won't, you won't go wrong. What a cool touch back to, you know, your family trips. So as she mentions all these apps and these websites, and now those are all available. So I encourage our listeners to pick a spot this summer, pick a spot this spring, and with the goal of looking for birds. Or maybe you perhaps already have a vacation site already set in mind. Set aside some time to discover the birds that are in that area Uh, learn something new. And if you're like me, it's okay to overuse that app because I have such limited knowledge of birding other than I knew when the robins sing, it's spring, but that's my, that's my limited information. And so I am, I'm grateful for these apps and I promise you I've used it a lot. Uh, They don't shut you off after so much use, so many uses. (laughs) Yeah, they're great resources and there's no shame in not knowing what the bird is. If you can enjoy it and you can appreciate it, it's okay that you don't know what it is and just learn as you go. And Tana wasn't able to join us for this conversation, but I do want to put a plug that our Kansas listeners should make sure they check out the Kansas birding trail. Um, It is a pretty awesome thing that that Kansas should be proud of. And and for the rest of our listeners, if you're looking for something to do, um, put, put that trail on your, on your to-do list. Um, that trail along with the Kansas Ornithological Society has been a great supporter of She Goes Outdoors. So I I do want to put that little plug in there, but Anna, again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. To Julia's point, we can go off on tangents. It's just, it's so fun to listen to our to our guests and just the amazing amount of just the wealth of knowledge that 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 you have. Just, I mean, to to spit off crazy awesome facts about different birds. Is, uh, I often just leave these discussions like in awe because I can remember that like two plus two is four, but I can't remember any 
true cool facts about any bird. So um, I'm, I'm impressed. But as we leave this conversation, I just wanted to really thank you for all that you do uh, for, for our avian friends here in Iowa, in the Midwest flyaway, and just for conservation in general. As we leave, do you have any parting thoughts uh, for our listeners? Well, I would just say that now is spring and it's a perfect time to go outside and enjoy the birds see what you can hear. If you're hearing new things, go, you know, go for a walk, see what kinds of, of beautiful colors you can find out there right now is kind of the start of the peak of migration. And so we're going to get our highest diversity of birds coming up here through, through May. So um, take advantage of that. And before it gets too hot out, go and enjoy the birds. So be sure to follow us on She Goes Outdoors Facebook page. We're trying to increase our followership there, and we want some communication. And we're also going to be sure to drop these links and all the resources that Anna has told us uh, during this this recording. We're going to make sure we drop them there. And that is the source, our Facebook page, to share uh, everything we have going on within She Goes Outdoors and our community. And a special shout-out to, you know, the – our followers that are adding feedback. We, we greatly appreciate that and share it among their communities as well. So as always, remember to subscribe to get the new episodes as they drop. We're getting, we're getting better at dropping them weekly. It, it's, it's, it's been crazy and we apologize that, but we want to continue to grab your ears as soon as possible. And as, like I said, you subscribe, uh, they'll drop that new episode right into your phone. And as always, we can't wait to see you outdoors. Outdoors.